Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. everybody back with another exciting episode so exciting talking about craft spirits which i love i'm 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 really stoked that we started the show or if i could just take a moment to congratulate the both of us oh wow um i'll let you because beard's getting real old to me <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at a tap list of like uh 29 beers and i'm like i don't know i kind of just want a mixed drink now is it beers getting really old or you're getting really old they're not mutually exclusive. Mm. I'm getting really old, too, and uh, curmudgeonly, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, the craft spirits world, I, I love it. I'm excited about it. And right. uh, um, I've actually been spending a lot of time um, with the Smuggler's Cove book by Martin Kate, our, oh, our, yeah. our uh, guest a couple shows ago on the right. Rome show, actually. Yeah, great show. If you haven't heard that, yeah, stop right here and go <laughs> listen to it and then come back. Uh, Welcome back from the Rome Show, everybody. <laughs> yes, and we'll give you a slight pop. Uh It was a great show, and um, yeah, I've just been making a ton of drinks out of oh, that yeah. book, and making um, syrups, all the syrups that he has in the book, and uh, it's like the cinnamon syrup is real good. And so just, how, how are the drinks you're making now? They're really good, I think. I, 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 well, I don't <laughs> oh. know. I think they're good, but after like four Mai Tais, uh-huh. you know, they're, <laughs> they're even better. Thanks, Beverly. <laughs> Uh, but I, I do notice that sometimes I can taste more of, like, let's say, in the Mai Tai. I can taste more of, like, the orange curacao in some than not others. Sometimes it's, like, more lime juice. and I, I So I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Oh, you're talking about in your own Mai Tai. In my one, own Mai Tai. One, one Mai Tai to the next. Yeah, it, it oh. varies. And I don't know why. I'm, I'm doing everything the same, I think. Or are you using fresh lime juice? Yeah. Oh, my God. That I go be... through so many friggin' limes. <laughs> It's well, annoying. The, the flavor intensity of fresh fruit like that varies, so that could be part of it. Yeah, you think so? Yeah, because you're no. just doing small, like single lime, probably right for a single, cocktail. Well, but or, I, have, I have like I brought a I, well. First of all, I bought a fruit squeezer or a fruit press. Um, oh wow, the hand press, I guess, is what it is. Okay, sorry, Beth. Hang on. Yeah, you're you're good. No, you're not good. I think it's like a, a hand juicer, isn't it? Sure, hand juicer. I like a hand thing press, but that's just <laughs> me. 
Yeah, where uh, you put fruit in it. And like, yeah, and you cut the lime and you throw it in the thing and then you squeeze it and then the juice goes everywhere but into the bowl. Oh, perfect. Yeah, because yeah. it just I don't know fires out everywhere. Um, but anyway, if, if you if you own if you have a little bar at home, get a little hand pressed juicer thing. <laughs> <laughs> if you want juice everywhere, they're pretty good because otherwise you got to squeeze them by hand, and it's just I don't know. It's not yeah. really, uh, it's not really very good. But uh, <laughs> it's not very uh, first worldly. No, it's not. <laughs> but I am excited. Uh, we're going up to Portland next week for the uh, National Homebrewers Conference. Yes, and I and Beverly here also, and that's where Halle Pele is, which is uh, his other tiki bar. But also, right. oh yeah, that's going to happen. And mm-hmm. I think more importantly, the Rum Club in Portland. What is that? It, they have like 500 different rums and you can they, a little it's like a it's like a dive bar that got I don't want to say hipsterfied by rum but it got mm. hipsterfied by rum okay and you can you, you make uh, they have like punch bowls they have a daily punch that you can order or they have a couple cocktails you can make and they just have this wall of rum and you can do a tasting or uh, a singular one or whatever and so oh, wow. when Tara and I were there um, a couple months ago they just threw a tasting together I go look I'm really interested in rum but I know nothing about it so what do you recommend oh, okay. anyway great people yeah uh, good drinks and uh, kind of a chill vibe very small outdoor patio but uh, yeah, and no thanks to I'm Martin, I, I might actually know something when I go there and <laughs> right. look at the wall of rum. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I thought about this like four in the morning because I was up because I just I don't know dad brain my right. kid now just keeps me up. Yeah, your kid farted Men- mentally. Like she's sleeping fine, but every time she like laughs in her sleep, which she does, which is real weird. Mm. Like just like me, I I did you tell a joke in your sleep? I've I've woken myself up telling myself a joke in my sleep. <laughs> was it good? Yeah, and then I remember waking up and I told Taryn, she goes, oh, God. I'm like, that was a good joke. I should write that down, and then I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember at like 4 in the morning, I remembered about Rum Club. And I was gonna oh, like, yeah. i got to tell Warren. Oh, no, it's <laughs> 4 in the morning. What am I doing? Well, I would have gotten it when I woke when I woke up the next morning. <laughs> I don't think it would have woken me up. Oh. Well, anyway, that's, I, I guess, the roundabout way of saying I'm not going to any breweries in Portland. Right. Do they even have breweries in Portland? I I heard, but I I think they're all closing down. Mm. They're all opening up pop-up French toast. um, I don't know. I'm just trying to come (laughs) up with something. Yeah, granola French toast. Um, no, no, no brewery tours. Nothing for me. I'm trying. I'm. I'm trying to really go go hard into this uh, craft spirits thing Mm. because I really, really enjoy it. Well, that's unfortunate for you because last time I was up there for uh, the ADI conference, yeah. I actually found a brewery or two that might be worth checking out. Uh, that, that's new to me, at least. Okay. Um, well, fake news. We'll, fig- we'll figure it out. We right. don't have that much time. That's so true. we'll see. And I'd much rather sit there drinking spirits, to be completely <laughs> well, honest. I hear or a, Rainier. I hear there's a wall of rum that we have to drink. <laughs> we have to. It's actually our ticket home is, is tied into if we finish that or not. It's at the bottom of one of those bottles? Yeah. Perfect. Well, speaking of craft spirits, everybody, our guest today, Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. Oh, it got really dark in here. There is so much light reflecting off of Warren's forehead right now. <laughs> Setting the mood. Yeah, I know my hairline is receding. Thanks for rubbing it in. Yeah. Good job. Good job. Uh, Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. And we have two of the guys on, Andy and Charlie. Are you guys there? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. How's it going? Good, man. Good. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. I appreciate Absolutely. that. Uh, so you guys are in Nashville, Tennessee, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I really wanted to go with Warren. Uh, we were talking before the show about uh, how he, he went and, and did the tour and was out there for the Crapper's Gardens. And, and Nashville is one of the most uh, one of the cities on my list of places to go to. And I really wish I would have gone, especially uh, especially because you went here, Warren. Yeah, 
And you missed out on a lot of other things in Nashville. It was pretty <laughs> well, cool. Well, I know. Hot chicken. Yeah. And, uh, all the good yeah. stuff. And there's, beer there's by the 12-pack. a lot pack. of great things to do in Nashville. Yeah, I got to uh, get out there. Yeah. I got. I have, I have like a list of cities to go to. One of them is New Orleans and, and then, uh, you know, and then Nashville. But uh, anyway, I was, oh, reading, <laughs> I was reading your guys' – I know, it's just party city after party city. And, <laughs> and if you knew me, that would be like, what is wrong? That's not even you. You can't stay indoors all day. He want, yeah, he wants to go sit and watch TV in a hotel room in party city. Hey, I don't get cable, and it's cheaper if I do it that way. <laughs> And be pissed at the loud music coming in through the window. <laughs> Keep it down. It's the tuba. It's 9.30 in the morning. What are you doing? Um, so Stay off my lawn. <laughs> yeah, it's not even mine. Stay off the hotel's lawn. <laughs> right. Uh, so I was reading a little bit about your guys' story, and you're the fifth generation descendants of someone called Charles Nelson. Who was Charles Nelson? Let's get into a little history here for a second. Well, he was, so again, yeah, our, our triple great-grandfather, that's three greats, and so he um, he came over to the U.S. from Germany in 1850, and uh, you know, he's got a, a really fascinating story, and something that we had kind of heard growing up, but really didn't honestly believe, yeah. um, and so it, it took uh, kind of a chance encounter at a, uh, at a butcher's house in Greenbrier, Tennessee, for, for the whole thing to come about, and and uh, realized that it that it was actually true. Um, so I, I, you know, Charlie's pretty good at telling the story. Maybe I'll let him do it. But uh, but it, it was pretty cool how we how we came about that. You know, Charles Nelson, uh, our triple great grandfather. We we love the fact that he was born on the Fourth of July, and <laughs> and uh, I think that he just was a, a true American and is uh, sort of. Uh, what I envision when I envision the American dream, really. And, you know, like Andy say, he came over to America with nothing but the clothes on his back, made soap and candles in New York for a couple of years, uh, moved to Cincinnati, was a butcher, and then before the start of the Civil War, moved to Nashville and started a wholesale grocery business where he was one of the first to bottle and sell whiskey rather than selling it by the barrel or the jug. And... um Wow. His other two best-selling products were uh, his uh, meat and his coffee. His butcher went on to start his own grocery business that's still kind of around in Nashville today, and the guy who delivered his coffee was named Joel Cheeks, who went on to uh, uh, you know that, take that uh, blend of coffee to the Maxwell House Hotel, and that became a, a pretty popular brand of coffee. Oh, wow. Um, and, yeah, and, and Charles... Uh, realizing that the demand for his whiskey far exceeded his supply, bought the distillery that was producing it, and a patent for improved distillation greatly expanded the production capacity and became one of the largest distilleries in the country, by far the largest in Tennessee. And uh, he produced about 30 different labels, um, and he was, he was just pretty involved in Nashville and other ways. And then uh, he actually passed away in 1891, and uh, his wife, Louisa, actually took over as one of the only women to run the distillery back then, which is something that we're super proud of. And um, she ran it for the last 18 years until 1909, when statewide prohibition hit Tennessee, forcing them to close their doors. Wow. Oh, that, wow. <clears throat> that's, a lot of, that's a lot of things to unpack in that story. That's a crazy story. <laughs> I mean, you guys, and you totally just brush past the cool story that I said we didn't even believe in the first place. Which was oh uh, yeah, he came from the moon to uh, <laughs> free people. Martians yeah. came down and gave well, him the steel. I guess, I guess I'll, I'll tell that story then, since 
I, oh, you have to now, Charlie. You have to it. now. Uh, so, so Charles, born on the 4th of July, 1835 yeah. in Germany. His father owned a soap and candle factory. And in 1850, decided he wanted to move his family to America. So he sold the soap and candle factory, converted all the family's earthly possessions to gold, had special clothing made to hold all the gold on his person. And so got up his family, his wife and six kids, boarded a ship named the Helena Sloan, which turned out to be kind of a famous German ship. It was the first German steamship to make the transatlantic journey. Um, and while they were at sea, severe storms, the ship was damaged, taking on water for a couple days and going down. And uh, a nearby ship named the Devonshire came to rescue the passengers. And the, our family was being ferried over on a safety boat to the Devonshire, and it capsized. Oh, no. And with all the gold, yeah. Oh. And so the father, with all the gold on his person, he went straight to the bottom of the Atlantic. Wow. Um, oh, so he didn't want to take his clothes off. <laughs> you didn't want to lose well, the gold? He was panicking, probably, and couldn't take his jacket off in time, and just kind of... Well, we heard that story growing up, and that was the part that we really didn't believe, and so, like, really kind of the only thing that we knew growing up as kids, we heard, you know, Dad or, you know, Uncle So-and-so tell this, kind of tell little bits and pieces of that story, um, but it was always over, you know, Christmas dinner with a glass or three or four or, one or whatever of wine, <laughs> and, uh, and it was, you know, and we were like... Six, seven, eight, ten, twelve years old, whatever, and they uh, were drinking the wine. <laughs> <laughs> of course, well, might have been sneaking. We didn't know what was what. So, but you know, it's like you hear your dad or your uncle tell this, and it gets maybe embellished, or at least in my mind, it was like gets embellished a little bit every year. But uh, then, and we'd also heard like basically that there was some sort of whiskey business. Um, in Greenbrier, Tennessee. And that's, I mean, literally all that we knew. We didn't know if the, the distillery business was legal or how big it was or really even where Greenbrier, Tennessee is. And yeah. so that, that's like we heard that story of falling off the boat with the gold and that some sort of distillery business existed. And that was really it. And so um, it was kind of a, a shock, but uh, to, to great surprise in a very positive way when we uh, kind of rediscovered all of it. I mean that that's that's it, it's it's not only it sounds very far fetched, right? I'm not saying obviously you're lying, but as as children sitting on the table, <laughs> right. especially if your family is anything like mine and they're reaching for the bottle more than they are the knife and fork kind of a thing, um, you, you 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 can't believe that. It seems too cinematic. It yeah. seems too um, right. too dramatic, uh, too cliche, maybe even right. to be an actual thing. Yeah, just to teach you a yeah, life lesson. <laughs> Never keep yeah, the gold on you, right? Truth, stranger than fiction type thing. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's incredible. So um, around the same time, you know, obviously there were other distilleries uh, in Nashville, and I'm I'm seeing in, in my notes here something that really kind of struck me as to how big uh, your your family's distillery uh, was. And uh, let's see, in uh, 1885, Charles Nelson sold nearly 380 thousand gallons of your Tennessee whiskey. While Jack Daniels, the famous Jack Daniels, of course. Jack who? <laughs> 23,000. Oh, they're just getting off the ground. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible to me. You guys have, you, your family had a giant operation. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that's, <laughs> it's one of those kind of crazy things where, you know, when we, again, sort of stumbled upon this history and then sort of 
to use your phrase, kind of unpacked it and, and looked at exactly what happened. It was just kind of every moment was was stranger than the last and more exciting and exhilarating. And so, you know, we learned about this and it's like, holy crap! I mean, this is this is incredible. And you know, it, it, like Charlie said, it was the biggest distillery in the state at a time where there was something like a thousand or two thousand distilleries within the state of Tennessee. <laughs> now, of course, a thousand. Yeah, they're, they're of course they're not you know, nearly as big as, uh, you know, it's, it's basically like a home operation type thing yeah. in those days. We've got some cool ads, uh, in our distillery, just talking about, um, you know, the best for family or medicinal use. So it wasn't <laughs> just kind of for fun as much as it, uh, as much it is, as it is today. Yeah. And so did uh, prohibition and, happened and obviously you had to, the family had to shut down the distillery. Is there a, a reason why, Everyone just walked away from that business once prohibition prohibition ended. We've we've got a, we've got a few sort of theories on on this, and uh, so I mean, the, being the largest distillery in the state by far, um, and and we did have we had three facilities: an office warehouse and bottling facility downtown Nashville, a big time production facility twenty miles north in Greenbrier, Tennessee, and then another office warehouse and bottling facility wow. in Louisville, Kentucky, and. So in 1909, when uh, you know it hit, um, we shipped. We had 8,000 barrels still aging. Shipped them up to Kentucky, bottled out of there, and sold out of there until 1915. And before Charles passed away, he had actually gotten into a couple other businesses, mostly banking. Um, and so the family kind of got into banking a little bit, and you know they thought so. It, you know. Federal prohibition hit 10 years after statewide prohibition hit in Tennessee. Right. And so, you know, they presumably thought, like, okay, this prohibition thing, this is a, a for good sort of thing. Hmm. But also, uh, Louisa, who was running the distillery, you know, a, a, you know, which is a remarkable thing, a woman of such incredible character and strength that, like, you know, running one of the largest distilleries in the country, by far the largest in the state of Tennessee, in a male-dominated industry, and yeah. she didn't even have the right to vote. And, you know, she was like, uh, we're, you know, like, women suffered, and, you know, and, like, her peers presumably were, you know, giving her a hard time being, you know, that all, the women's suffrage movement kind of went hand-in-hand hand with the temperance movement, and, um, you know, she is a woman behind one of the largest alcohol companies around. Yeah. So, you know, it, it must have, there must have been a lot of conflict and just, you know, a lot of push and pull. And, and, um, I'm sure she was conflicted, but, uh, you know, the, the family basically just, just walked away because in some ways they felt like they had to. Um, and went mostly into other businesses and banking. Well, I think banking, my, my kind of, Probably a better choice, <laughs> more more stable, and, and more not stable, going to be federally banned. You can make more money, and it's you know less less you know hoofing you know hogsheads and barrels and all that kind of stuff around. So probably a good choice. <laughs> and my kind of take on it also to kind of add on to what Charlie said was not only that did they get into banking, but when you when you really think about um, kind of the. the the society around them, um, and Louisa being, you know, a proper lady, but probably everyone think, oh, you're you're such a sinner in this big, fancy, 
liquor enterprise. <laughs> you know, I just I kind of picture when the kids go to school when when prohibition hit. The kids go to school and the and the distillery shuts down. I, she's probably not telling these kids like, "Oh, hold your head up high. We're still proud distillers and you know, we were very good at it and it made us rich or whatever like that." It was it's probably a lot more along the lines of listen, your your friends are going to kind of give you the side eye and be like oh you're my mom says that your mom is a sinner you know that kind of thing and so she's probably more like look let's just let it be pretend like it never happened and it kind of gets swept under the rug and so generation after generation it's like each generation thereafter knows a little bit less of what happened just because they just didn't talk about it and so that's to me probably the most most likely reason that you know, you get a hundred years down the line and we really didn't know much of anything. And, and, yeah. so, and so only, only the kind of most, uh, the most fantastical, you know, portion of the story. <laughs> sure. And so the statewide prohibition started in 1909 and wasn't, uh, the county that Nashville's in still a dry county up until pretty recently. Well, we're in Davidson County, which there are counties surrounding us. I don't know what year that would have been. Um, you know, I, I bet our dad would probably have a better idea. Certainly, uh, grandparents. So it, it wasn't legal to distill in Davidson County until 2009. Oh, okay. You could still buy liquor by the drink. And actually, liquor by the drink didn't pass in Davidson County until, like, I think the 70s. Wow. Um, so so that was but, still a long uh, time. You could still have. Yeah, yeah it's a long time. And it's always crazy to me that there's still places like that there's still places like that we're you know tightly controlled you can't yeah. dry counties and stuff that blows my mind so let's let's fast yeah. forward a bit then so uh when you guys heard about it in what 2006 uh how long until you decided hey you know what we should do is follow the the bloodline i guess so to speak and open open up a place of our own um i i almost hesitate to say there was any time period in between that at all like <laughs> so the the minute that we recognized and saw this old bottle, um, it was that we knew. You know, we, okay. we kind of started working on it. So, the this what happened was in 2006, our dad had gone in with <clears throat> some buddies to to buy a full cow with the meat uh, from this butcher up in Greenbrier. Mm-hmm. Um, am I crazy or Charlie? You didn't tell this yet, right? We no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> it's all new. So. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, 2006, yeah, so we go up to Greenbrier, uh, with our dad to pick up his quarter of the cow worth of meat yeah. from this butcher, and, you know, it just goes to the butcher's house, and he's got a little slaughterhouse in behind there, and, uh, and we stopped to get gas along the way, and we stopped at the Sitco station at the corner of Springfield Highway and Main Street, mm-hmm. and, uh, we're just kind of outstretching our legs, and, uh, we see this historical marker at the corner, on the top line, it says Nelson's Greenbrier Distilleries, <laughs> and uh, that that pretty well grabs our attention. Yeah. We read the next line, and it says one mile east on Long Ranch Road, Charles Nelson opened the Greenbrier Distillery. You know, and it goes on to talk about the the prosperity brought to the county, and the, you know, he's the largest producer of sour mash whiskeys and fruit brandies in Robertson County, and all this stuff. And it was just like, wow! I mean, it was that kind of hair raising moment where we realized, okay, we knew we were in Greenbrier, uh, but we we weren't expecting to see this thing just kind of smack us in the face, you know? 
but it was still just a historical marker. So, okay, what do we do? That's very cool. We're amazed. Let's yeah. continue on. So we filled up the tank, head over to the butcher's house, who lived about a mile east. Of course, we didn't know. We were, we were on Main Street. Well, Main Street pretty quickly turns into Distillery Road. <laughs> and uh, we didn't see the, the, the street signs change. But we got to the butcher's house, and we asked him what he knew about the distillery. And he said, well, you're, you're looking at it, man. You're, you're, we're standing on the land that the old distillery was on. And we kind of stood there wide-eyed and Dude. crazy. And he said, look across the street. And we saw across the street this old barrel warehouse still standing. And then a little bit behind that, there was this rickety old uh, sort of building that looked like uh, a grain house or something or maybe a help of fermenters. But it was standing kind of on stilts literally right above the creek with the creek rushing underneath it. And that creek was being fed, if you follow it a little bit, up um, on the hill behind it was the spring house and the original spring was still running uh you know the spring house still standing and so we walked over and we're like all right well we got to try this so we drank from the spring and um it, you know it was still running coming I mean, in the heat of i think it was right in the middle of july still running cold and uh and that was kind of hair raising moment number two as i, as I kind of call it and uh and then chuck the butcher who and you could write a book about this guy himself. He was, just, he was like a living cartoon. This, this huge guy with a... I mean, he was that... I'm not even exaggerating. He was the, the country guy who, uh, when he when he says an ass, it will whistle through his teeth. Oh, perfect. And, uh, I mean, it was amazing. And uh, so he told us about the Greenbrier Historical Society just a few blocks up the street. So we went back there. And uh, this old little Victorian house dedicated to the history of the town of Greenbrier and all these things and then it has this room um pretty much with just old greenbrier distillery memorabilia and, and things that they've kind of dug up over time and old ads and articles and, and such and there's this one thing in this little display case these two things actually and it was these two original bottles of greenbrier tennessee whiskey you know with our name on it and that was just that moment and uh like being struck by lightning we just knew this is what we're here to do i mean because we were you know, I was I was a year out of college. Charlie still had a semester left, and it was just kind of like perfect timing, and just one of those things where it was like, all right, here it goes, and started from there. Is it protected land? How come you didn't start the distillery right on the same location then, or nearby anyway? It's uh, it, so the land is it's not quite as I mean, it's still beautiful land for sure, but it's uh, it's not exactly like it was you know back then. Um, Part of the problem is access because it would cost like oh, several million dollars to improve the road access, oh, and oh, okay. you have to like buy some houses, tear them down, build some roads. Uh, part of the land is on the National Register of Historic Places, and uh, that land is actually owned by the same family that bought the land from our family in 1915. Hmm. Uh, and we, we've been working on trying to buy that land back from it, but it's very difficult because there's like 500 or so family members that own a piece of it. And oh, so it's, great. it's yeah. just a challenge, but, wow. but, um, we're, we're, we're working on it. It's just a long, slow process, just like everything in the whiskey business. But, <laughs> sure. Um, we, we, we do have our eye on some other land, not too far, but not nice. too far away. That's an amazing story for, for a few reasons. And, and again, 
I'm going to say the C word, cinematic. I mean, that is, you're, you, so far your life has been just, you can't write this. You can't write right. it. You're, uh, somehow, out of the blue, randomly, you're purchasing meat from a guy who lives on the land that your great-great-great-grandfather used to make whiskey on. Like, there's, there, you can't, that's just all by chance. That's amazing yeah. to me. That's 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 totally amazing, man. So was it in that moment when you're like, oh, so the guy did wear gold when he crossed the Atlantic? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We actually, or at least I personally, didn't even fully believe that story until there were two things that made me realize that this story was true. Number one, Charles Nelson's obituary where it references uh, that whole thing. But uh, number two was. This old lady, Dory Vilsnack, who is apparently a long-lost cousin that we have never met, or at least, Andy, you haven't ever met her, have you? No, no. Yeah, I mean, she just reached out to us, and uh, we, we used to tell the the story a little bit differently of the boat ride over, just saying basically that, you know, and, you know, Charles' father just fell overboard of the Helena Sloman, and that was it, and she was like, you're telling the story all wrong, and, uh, you know, we were like... What, what do you mean? And she sent us a copy of the New York Herald from 1850 talking about the journey over and Helena Sloman and all of the passengers on board. And, you know, it actually talked about the whole thing that happened and that the passengers were being ferried from the uh, Helena Sloman to the Devonshire via safety boat. And that's so when it she knew, capsized. She knew all the details, and that's your, that's your reference, right? That's your confirmation, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's incredible. And, we, and so something that's really neat is that we continue to find more and more stuff all the time and find more details. Uh, and people are finally are starting to sort of uh, come out of the work somewhat and, and be like, oh, I have a bottle or here's this old ad or, you know, here's this tidbit of information that I, I didn't know what this was. But now that I saw your story or something or heard something about it, it made me realize, oh, this is what this is. And Andy, I mean, Andy, you just uh, got at an auction. Uh, it, it just came in, what, today, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. An old bottle that he found on an auction uh, site online, and uh, we swooped that up. And so we've got probably around 40 original bottles from back in the day of multiple different brands, some full. We've got some, like, uh, Greenbrier, Tennessee rye whiskey from 1899, 126 proof that I think we've got two full bottles of that. We've got a couple full bottles of the original Tennessee whiskey. Wow. Uh, we've got a half, half full bottle of the apple brandy that they made a couple bottles of this fortified wine called Angelica wine from like 1904. Do you have plans to um, open any of them? Like open yeah, the full we, bottles? Uh, we definitely would like, I mean, you know, of course, we're distilling Tennessee whiskey now and putting barrels down, and we'll release that, you know, I hope is next summer. Um, and, you know, we're making rye whiskey kind of, you know, once a quarter. We'll, we'll do about a week of production of rye whiskey, but it's absolutely our plan over time. You know, it's like Charlie said, you know, you just got to have a ton of patience with this. But, yeah, we totally want to do, you know, brandies and gins and, you know, really kind of um, – flesh out the rest of that yeah. portfolio that we that we're currently missing one thing real quick andy mentioned gin and i just wanted to say that charles nelson produced apparently produced one of the first american gins wow um and so that's why why we would want to look at you guys keep in line with the, and so when your rye is ready are you going to open up one of the original rye bottles and do a side-by-side comparison ah. 
at some point, yeah, I would love to. My only, you know, it's like bottles that old. Who knows what uh, what's in that glass? <laughs> yeah. right. you so you worried about some lead or something like yeah, that? A small amount of exposure, <laughs> you'll be fine, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. You'll be all right. Well, make sure to yeah. call us because we'll be there for it. <laughs> I'm fine with some lead. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so you guys opened in 2013, right? Or is that when you started producing spirits? Or We started we started distilling. So, you know, we still need a source product, and so that's how we had to get started uh, with MGP. And, you know, because it's funny, like Charlie and I, we, we get asked really often, mostly by like say sort of business minds and things like that. Like, so what was the hardest thing in getting started? And it was easily raising money, and we had a hell of a time doing that. And so we had to kind of evolve our business plan, start slower than we'd imagined, and ended up sourcing products to try to get something going to be able to, you know, raise some more, you know, revenues, attract more investors, etc. So a long way of saying. Uh, we ended up building our own distillery in uh, finishing in 2014. Late, like August 2014 was when we started distilling ourselves, and then November okay. 2014 was when we opened to the public for tours and tastings. And that's kind of common, I think, right in the in the in the small batch spirits world, where um, yeah. as you're getting fun, you need to raise funds, and as you're as you're locating your own spot, you kind of buy product and do blending on your own, and maybe some aging and stuff like that. But you got yeah, you got to get out totally. there. You can't wait five years or whatever, <laughs> you know, with all the costs right. and stuff. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's start tasting some some spirits, Warren. Yeah, we've got four. Uh, do you guys have any recommendations on the order? Or do you know which one uh, you have? Which ones do you have? We have the uh, the Bell Mead Sour Mash Whiskey Bourbon. That's a, yeah, bourbon. We have the uh, Nelson's uh, First 108 Tennessee Whiskey. Uh, we have the Bell Mead uh, Bourbon. Uh, I'm going to slaughter this. The Mouvedri Cask Finish. Sure. Oh, nice. Is that, yeah. was that that's, good? That's what I was just drinking. Oh, man. I can't wait for that one. And then uh, the Belgian yeah. Bourbon Honey Cask finish. Yeah, yeah. Where'd you guys get those bottles? <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're samples, yeah. so don't worry about it. But uh, <laughs> right, They're sample 750s. We got them. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, Cases. We got actually full cases of them all. Uh, we're, you know, we're that's a big a, deal. That's a solid lineup right there. I well, thank so you guys for sending them to us. Yeah. My... Here's my suggestion. I say you go with the first 108, the Tennessee whiskey first. Okay. Okay. Is that that's the green green label? Yes. Yes, sir. Okay. Cool. And then and then you would go with the Bellmead Classic, the bourbon. And then, okay. yeah, Charlie, help me out. Whether I don't know if I, you should do I, the Mouvedre or the Honey. Line. I'd 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 probably do. Oh man, maybe the maybe take a taste of the Mouvedre, and it might be. That'll sort of acclimate your palate to it a little bit, and then go to the honey, and then let the Bovedger sort of air out and just, you know, sit in your glass for a little while, and then revisit that. Okay. Um, yeah, so do. There's, there's, there's so many different layers to the Bovedger cask, and it just, like, will get better and better with every sip. Okay. okay. Well, let's and, let's start in with the 108, then. Uh, tell me a little bit about this whiskey, if you wouldn't mind. So this is, this is really our first uh, self-distilled stuff and this is our tennessee whiskey mash bill from the original recipe that charles nelson did back in the day um which is corn wheat and malted barley that that mash bill has no rye in it so we did tennessee whiskey and so, all, all the others sorry i need to cut in this is very different from all the others because it's the only weeded one whereas all the others are high rye content 
all the bell oh, okay. mead expressions are high rye content high rye, okay. Tennessee whiskey. Even though it's a weird. bourbon? Or I guess we'll get to it. Um, let me yeah, ask, let me ask yeah. you a question about the about the the recipe. Did you guys have kind of a family treasure chest of all of the stuff that your family had saved for the last hundred years to go through, or did you have to track some of the stuff down? Uh, we had to track it down. Um, so we found a couple few original sort of mash bills uh, from newspaper articles, actually. Uh, really? So back in the day, it's kind of a long story, but back in the day, I'll try to make it short. Uh, there were like picnics at the distillery and tours and stuff, and uh, one of the days there was uh, a bunch of people on tour, and there were a couple of journalists on it, and uh, Mr. Bollinger, who was the like, right-hand man of Charles Nelson, was going through the process. First, we grind up 103 bushels of corn and cook it to 212 degrees, and then we cool it down and added 28 bushels of wheat and so on and so forth. <laughs> Went through the whole process, and one of the journalists wrote it down and published it the next day, and oh. we found that newspaper article. Wow. So that's, that's how we got, for example, for the, the Tennessee whiskey recipe. That's um, pretty cool, But man. we did well, not for know the whole recipe for... Uh, for bell mead we just knew that it had rye in it mm. and so what makes yeah. is tennessee whiskey a, I guess protected name and if it is what makes a tennessee whiskey separate from any other whiskey well it is a protected it's kind of an interesting thing and it can get really complicated so i'll try to keep it simple the strangest thing about it is that the federal government the ttb does not recognize tennessee whiskey specifically as uh, its own sort of appellation. It only recognizes, if you call it Tennessee whiskey, the federal government thinks it's a, a whiskey from Tennessee, and that's all. Hmm. But the state of Tennessee recognizes Tennessee whiskey as specifically meeting the criteria for bourbon that the federal government you know, sets, sets forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has to be made in Tennessee, and it has to undergo that charcoal mellowing process that is, has oh, become right. so famous. Um, and the barrels also have to be aged here uh, in Tennessee as well. Okay. So, I mean, it, it's a it's a kiss and cousin to bourbon, and I, to be honest, would argue that it technically is a bourbon too, but it's also a Tennessee whiskey. Okay. So uh, no whiskey from any other state can call itself Tennessee whiskey, even if they do it in the same style. Oh, okay. So yeah. that's kind of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, So, so even a... a a bourbon made in Kentucky, if they if they did the charcoal filtering or, or resting, uh, it couldn't be a Tennessee whiskey. And could they even mention that, or is it just a secret? Like you uh, can say Tennessee whiskey well, style. I mean, I, yeah, I guess I'll, probably on the in the kind of puffery section on the back, they could probably say we made this in the style of a Tennessee whiskey. But you know, I mean, yeah. Kentucky's got its own pretty nice little heritage there for whiskey. So <laughs> if I were sure. them, I wouldn't dare mention Tennessee. You know, yeah. Just, Fine. Stick to your own strengths. You know? are, how about the state out here in California where we don't really have anything it's, special? <laughs> it's still the wild west. Hey, you yeah. got to invent your own thing. Yeah, we have steam beer, Warren. That's oh right. yeah, San Francisco whiskey. There, there you go. Hey, there you go. Uh, I really enjoy this, and and I'll tell you what, it does kind of taste bourbon esque. It, it's it's big and and uh, uh, I don't want to say forceful, because it, uh, but forceful. It's like uh, you know what I mean. It's it's flavorful. It's punchy in the face. Um, but it's very smooth at the same time, if that makes sense. It has those round vanilla, a little bit of like uh, pale chocolate malt, like if you were brewing beer. Yeah. There's like a little bit of that kind sure. of thing going on. Um, and add a little water to it, and yeah. it, just, it opens up so lovely. This is a very intense whiskey. 
Yeah, what's the yeah, proof on this? Thank you. The the thing about this is that it's it's only two year old whiskey and it comes out of a thirty gallon barrel. Wow. And so the the whole thing behind the first one oh eight, the reason that we call it first one oh eight is because, you know, very early on in our sort of business planning and all that, we figured uh, you know, it's gonna take so long to do this and you know, the barrels are gonna take forever and so let's try to see if there's some way that we can um kind of cut any time off um of the aging process, not cut time off the aging process, but see if we can get something to market sooner than, uh, you know, four or five years. And so we had this plan to start aging, you know, some of our distillate in 30 gallon barrels and, and the other half in, in the standard 53. And that after two years, we'd kind of blend those together and do a two year old whiskey, you know, and, and, uh, after about a year, year and a half or so, not even a year and a half, probably a year or so, we, figured there's a better way to do this and we we kind of rejiggered our numbers and figured you know we can make this work if we just do without these 30 gallon barrels altogether and just go all 53s from here on out but at that time we had already filled totally coincidentally 108 of those 30 gallon barrels (laughs) and we figured okay let's do something with these on their own and make it special so we released it last year because that's when some of these barrels started becoming two years old, um, which is you know the designation for a for a straight whiskey has got to be at least two years old. Um, and then last July happened to be 108 years after Prohibition shut us down. You know, 1909 to 2017, and so oh like gosh. we got 108 <laughs> barrels, releasing it 108 years after. I'm not even joking. I mean, this was purely coincidental. So we said, all right, well, 108. It's got to be in that name somewhere. Yeah. Because uh, we wanted to differentiate it from what we will be releasing, although it's the same mash bill, uh, next summer, which is that Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee Whiskey, the, the full four-year-old 53-gallon release. Okay. I think if you look up serendipity in the dictionary, it has a picture <laughs> of you two guys. see the Nelson family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, we try to try to put some sort of symbolism in there, you know, wherever we can find it. And I feel fortunately, like... We've, come across a good bit i feel like you don't even need to try right. it, just ha- it just happens right. you just wake up yeah, yeah. oh hey that's that's we've, incredible. we've been incredibly fortunate absolutely and yeah. you know what this whiskey is really good i really enjoy this do you what's the proof uh that it's bottled at that one's 90 proof so oh, that okay. stuff is most of those 30 gallon barrels went into the barrel at 125 proof uh sat there for two years or more and uh goes in the bottle at 90 Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to the bourbon. So, uh, do me a so the the Bell Mead um, is just a, a a brand of uh, an offshoot of Nelson's Greenbrier. Yeah. So uh, Bell Mead is one of the thirty labels that Charles Nelson produced back in the day. Okay. Um, and it was one of three that we know of that he produced in conjunction with other companies. And hmm. this one he produced in conjunction with the Sperry Wade and Company who was instrumental in the founding of the Bellmead Plantation here in Nashville, which back in the day was one of the nation's leading thoroughbred farms. And so wow. uh, there are two horses on the label, and those horses were studs there at Bellmead. And uh, the one on the right-hand side of the label actually was named Bonnie Scotland, who is the founder of the Northern Dancer Bloodline that includes like War Admiral, Sea Biscuit, Secretariat, Man of War, California Chrome, American Pharaoh. Yeah, pretty much like all the horses that even race in the Derby today can trace their bloodline back to Bonnie Scotland. 
And uh, the original label actually had the names of the horses on it above them, but we decided to take the names off of the label because the other horse's name was Brown Dick. So. <laughs> well, if you want to put names back on them, you could just put Warren and Jason, right? And that'd be fine. And we'll be fine. <laughs> but I don't understand why would you put Brown Dick? Brown Dick sounds great. It's like very. Uh, it sounds very uh, historical. Yeah. The, the 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 way that we got started was by our our family. Uh, putting up literally everything that we owned personally guarantee a loan to get started sourcing barrels and so we're like man you know we don't want to take any unnecessary risks so why don't we just take the names off the label so that the bank doesn't come and like take our parents house away and my dog and that sort of thing so. <laughs> the dog That's goes fair. to the bank <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll, we'll, <laughs> what do you love yeah. she's valuable we'll keep everything you kids can keep everything we're taking the dog right. um hey i <laughs> i definitely understand you want to uh you want to make you know your your label is, is the most successful that it can be and i feel like having the word dick yeah. on a label probably isn't uh <laughs> yeah. Give people the fewest possible reasons to not buy your your bottle, right? Especially with a picture of a horse on it. Like that's kind of yeah. you want to. Um... Warren, what do you think yeah. of this bourbon, man? Uh, I'm really enjoying it. I think that uh, I want to try. I really liked how the first one opened up. So I've been I've been sipping it and then adding a little bit of water, taking another sip, and it just is totally changing the experience. Yeah, these so, open up. So this. Oh no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, I, I was just sorry to jump in. I was just going to say that. Uh, uh, so this is totally different. It's a, it's got, it's a bourbon, a high rye content bourbon, and so mm-hmm. there's going to be a little bit of spice up front, but uh, then underneath there's some nice, you know, of those caramel and vanilla confectionery notes, and then some nice fruity and floral notes that I think come out a little bit more when you open it up with a little bit of water or something. Um, and so, I, but I think that you'll generally uh, it maintains that that kind of high rye content backbone. Yeah, what I love somewhat. what I love about spirits like bourbon, especially, is you can get kind of I call it floral, like a floral thing yeah. when it opens up, almost perfumey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 I definitely get that out of out of this bourbon. It's uh, you know when you add a little bit of water to it, it kind of softens everything. It's not as as hot, and uh, and it really just kind of. Let's those more subtle notes that I think are, and I don't know anything from anything, guys. So, so <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but I think sometimes the alcohol can kind of smash a lot of the more delicate notes that you can get from the malt. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all you know. Every step of the the process, from the cooking of the mash to the fermentation, which I would argue that the fermentation itself is the most delicate process of the whole thing, but then. Uh, then the distillation, where you can kind of hone in and say, well, okay, this and that was created in the fer- in the fermentation. And then the barrel aging is just a whole different uh, different animal. Where it's just it, it's just incredible because you know I, I really do call it magic because it's it, there's obviously chemistry going on in there, but it, there there's certain things that you know you really just can't recreate or or create in an artificial way, and so. It's time and temperature. I mean, anyone who knows chemistry in any way at, at all knows that time and temperature kind of are, are the ruler there. And so, yeah. you know, the older a whiskey gets, the more stuff can happen to it in the barrel over time. And, you know, you can overdo it, you can underdo it. And so the key is just getting that really nice balance and getting, to me, I, that that's those were one of my favorite things about any whiskey. If you can pick out these things that are particularly kind of unique and floral and 
things that just stand out. You know, like wow, this is whiskey. That's you know, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I'm not sure that I've had before is a necessarily rye heavy bourbon to where Hmm. uh, the the rye almost acts as kind of like a a drying uh, feature at the end, where like normally a a bourbon would have a sweet corn finish to Mm me. Yeah, and the rye just comes in Mm -hmm. and just dries it out. To where I'm almost ready for another sip, even though I probably shouldn't. It's um, <laughs> a really interesting, really interesting uh, finish to it that I, I'm definitely enjoying. I just can't think of another bourbon that I've had that's like this. It does taste pretty unique. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, all right, Warren, let's move on to the Mouvedre cask. Let's Mouvedre on. Mouvedre. <laughs> wow. <laughs> King of the Segway. Yeah. Yeah. Next. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> what is Mouvedre? I'm imagining it's a wine, but uh, it, I mean it could also be a, a, a an early model, you know, Ford. For all I know, I have no idea. <laughs> family history, who knows? Um, so Mouvedre uh, is, is is a wine that um, generally is used in a like GSM blend, like a Grenache Syrah Mouvedre blend, and it's usually mm-hmm. like you know the smallest amount in that blend, but. Uh, we have a, a friend who has a winery. His name's Andrew Tao. He's got the Withers Winery, and he's got these great uh, uh, wines, and he has a, a Movedra, Um And uh, he sent us a barrel, an empty barrel, after he dumped it, and then we finished bourbon in there. And it's actually, I, I told you I was drinking it. Uh, I've been drinking it a little bit uh, <laughs> while we've been talking here. Yeah. And it, it's my favorite, personally. I hate to play favorites, but um, I, I do love it. And there are just so many different layers to it. And you get these really nice, like, rich, dark cherry notes. And just, like, uh, I mean, it's really just beautiful, I think. Wow. Um, and it, I think that the, the wine and the bourbon kind of just married together in a in a really beautiful way. And, I mean, there's hints of the wine that were still left in the pores of the wood of the barrel. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think it's got a great nose. But the, the first sip that you take, I think, can sometimes be um, a little bit overwhelming and almost yeah. become, like, bitter tasting. But then sure. as you as you get used to it, and it's still, like, I think, what, 117.8 proof or something like that. Um, and... Uh, you know, it just, you start to acclimate your palate to it and then it just starts to open up. And I, I hesitate to say this, but it, to me, in some ways almost tastes like <laughs> in a really good way, like a cherry starburst. Um, and, <laughs> but like I said, I, I hesitate to say it because it sounds <laughs> kind of funny, but, um, but anyway. If yeah, I, I get a starburst I, I that tasted it. like bourbon, I would be, I would eat candy a lot more <laughs> right. often. Yeah. Um, I, I know, I know what you mean about the cherry flavor, and it's almost like not to be a cocktail snob, but it's almost like a Luxardo cherry. Oh, you snob! Right? <laughs> like the yeah. the really good aged Maraschino kind of cherries. Uh, a lot of those dark syrup flavors. Yeah, uh, I, I get in there too, and it, got, it, it does have a spice, and maybe it's the the alcohol, but it's just bam right there, right in your face. Yeah, yeah. and it definitely yeah, this, this, up. this is the first. This is the first uh, regular, uh, well, I don't know if regular is the right way to put it, but the first sort of traditional wine cask finish that we've done. I mean, we've done multiple, um, you know, sherry and Madeira and, well, cognac, but more fortified wine cask finishing. 
Cognac, of course, is a brandy and not a fortified wine, although it's a distilled wine. But this is the first one that's been, you know, like a wine that you would just, you know, you could finish a whole bottle of it in a night. Um, and so that's been really interesting to see how that kind of turned out. Um, not not quite as high yeah. in alcohol content in that sort of native spirit or wine of the barrel. Are you going to do something like this again, you think? I mean, this came out really good. I don't know why you wouldn't. That's yeah, I mean, we, we're, yeah. you know, we're never ones to just say we'll never do uh, anything like that. We like keeping right. our options open, keeping an open mind about these things. And if something comes up, then hell yeah, we'll do it. We'll try it. Man, and, and I just yeah. added some water and took a sip, and, and I think the barrel character is coming out a little more. But, mm. like, I don't know why. It, visually, I think of the, the flavor that I'm getting is, like, midwood. You know, it's not the mm. char necessarily, um, but it's just the, the the middle of the wood. Um, I, I don't know what I don't know what I'm trying to say that I'm tasting right, but it's I, I guess middle of the middle You're of the wood. Does the that make sense? You guys? Am I, am <laughs> I making stuff up? Just yeah. validate him, please. Please, the middle. <laughs> you know, the middle. You're getting the, the toasted layer. Sure. Yeah. There you Underneath go. the char. Yeah, not the char. Yeah. Like if you look at an oat cube, right, for you homebrewers right. out there. Right. Not the black. Right, not the black, yeah. not the wood, but the right. the middle. It's just it's but it's soft and, and sweet at the same time and um and but it's tannic and it tastes like like really good wood. Yeah. To to me the, yeah. the aroma <laughs> just takes me to a, a barrel room at a winery up in Napa. Like Oh yeah, absolutely. Just, just instantly right there. It's got a little earthiness, kinda like where they keep their barrel rooms really humid and, and it's and it's kind of Ooh. musty, but it, yeah. not, I'm I'm not trying to make it sound gross, but like it, it's really pleasant yeah. uh, grape oak character. And then as you like, just like you said, you take a couple more sips, even maybe uh, cut it a little bit, and then those cherry flavors start to come out. Absolutely, and the middle wood. Starts to come hey, you, out. You know that term too. Yeah. Now who's being bougie? By the way, well, when I'm wine tasting up in Napa. Well, all the times I've been, you've been. <laughs> That's so. true. That's probably true. Thank you for taking me. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's tackle this honey cask finish. So, tell me about the cask first, and then we'll we'll drink the the spirit within. Yeah. So for this honey cask, it's it's similar to the Mourvedre in that uh, it's a unique and different finishing cask that we used mm-hmm. um, with our bourbon. So this is a pretty cool story it's kind of like we don't really necessarily do anything if it doesn't have a cool story to it um whether by chance or or whatnot but we um we had this guy jeff otto from true bee honey which is a honey producer down in franklin tennessee just just south of us and he asked us they make a barrel aged honey and he asked us for some used uh bourbon barrels and we said well yeah sure why not pretty cool and uh and then after the honey was being uh, was aging in that barrel. He said, I've got an idea. What if you guys want this barrel back after we dump the honey out of it? Huh. Could you do anything cool with it? And, uh, and so he said, yeah, of course. So he dumped the honey out of it and gave it back to us. And, you know, similar to the wine cask finish, it's just a honey cask finish. And so instead of wine being in the pores of that barrel, it was actually, you know, this really beautiful wildflower kind of raw natural honey. Wow. And so we finished the bourbon in it. The, the, another really interesting thing about that is honey is has a property about it that it makes it called it uh, hydroscopic, mm-hmm. which is I thought it was hydrophilic. I don't know if that even makes sense. <laughs> but anyway, honey honey attracts uh, water. Okay. Uh, and yeah. So what it, it acts, you know, it's like like 
uh, salt. It'll kind of dry something out uh, that's next to it. And so um, it took the liquid, like the bourbon within the pores of the barrel, and really sucked in the liquid into the honey. So when we dump the honey, you really get some of that barrel aged bourbon barrel character from the honey itself. But then what we were left with was this barrel that had some honey within the pores of it, but all the wood and the staves were really dry surrounding it. So we poured the bourbon back in there, and we had all these leaks. Oh, no. Um, And Uh. so we, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a total disaster or anything. It was just really kind of an interesting experiment thing to see because, you know, naturally with these, these barrels, it's like sometimes it'll spring a leak, but it usually seals itself up pretty quickly because that wood swells and will kind of get uh, water or whiskey logged, I guess, and yeah. swell itself up and seal back up. And so, that, you know, that's just what happened. Um, but it was just really such a cool, I mean, you know, science. Yeah, yeah. That, that's... So it was pretty... It's pretty, pretty cool unique. thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, who knew that people were aging honey in barrels? Right, right. Um, <laughs> right, and, yeah. And then, of course, yeah, you guys want this back? Yeah, dude. Here, let me tell you my entire family history. <laughs> we, yeah. we only do cool yeah. stuff. <laughs> what are you, crazy? Yeah, yeah. And so what yeah. does uh, so, barrel finishing mean? Because it's aged two years in, in a new oak barrel, right, in order to be bourbon? Yeah, so, well, bourbon... Specifically, um, fun fact about bourbon, you don't technically have to age it for any particular amount of time uh, or any minimum amount of time, rather. You could literally age it in a barrel for 10 seconds and call it bourbon, but of course nobody does that. That'd be crazy and wasteful and you wouldn't get a very good product out of it. It'd just be basically white white whiskey or unaged whiskey. Hmm. But you could still call it bourbon. The two-year-old threshold uh, is the point at which you can call your whiskey straight, uh, and then, but it, whatever. Anyway, too much detail. This particular <laughs> no, no, whiskey. We're um, trying to learn here. I, if I if I'm remembering this correctly, I think it was a ten-year-old uh, bourbon, uh, bourbon that had been in their its original barrel for ten years before we finished it uh, in the honey cask. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow! And we only finished it in the honey cask for. I want to say two to three months. Um, okay. Really, not very long at all. I didn't need very long. You know, we kept tasting it, you know, about every week or two, um, and so we could tell when it was getting close to what we wanted. The other thing is this: we we never cut this down to any proof. This particular, which we've done two honey barrels. Which what's the proof on this one? It's either one hundred five point nine or. We just have a little uh, mailing address label on the bottle of that one. So oh, gotcha, any. right. Which I love because it's so, like, really uh, official. Well, right, it, it makes it so we yeah. can sell it right. after the show. You're right, yeah. right. <laughs> well, so it's, uh, in any case, I mean, it's it's barrel strength, it's barrel proof. You know, when, when we dumped uh, the 10-year-old bourbon, we just put it right into that honey cask, and we dumped the honey cask, and we just put it right in the bottle. So okay. uh, really no adulteration in, in or filtration rather uh, or, or cutting or anything. I mean, there was, there was some filtration. We made sure we didn't get any char in there, but sure. um, yeah. well, yeah, you know, with, the, with the 750 is if you leave them out, I mean, that's a kind of the cool thing I think about the, the honey cask, especially is you leave it on your shelf. If you got a 750 of it and you see a little sort of silt on the bottom and that's just, it's basically just that's the honey flavor, I and mean, that's what it took out of it in the natural, uh, the course of, of that finishing. That's, you you so can then, eat it. Yeah. 
Would you recommend, yeah. if you had a bottle of that, shaking it up then to mix that back in when you're drinking? Yeah, yeah, portion. for sure. Okay. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just, it'll just settle to the bottom. That's okay. a trip. You know, and, and so while you, were, while you were telling that story, Andy, I was sitting here trying to figure out which was my favorite. Because that's just, mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm a human being and I like to categorize stuff and ordering. Th- I don't know why. Yeah. You like a winner. I, well, you know, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, I, I, I couldn't do it. Because at first I was like, well, I think the Honeycast is good, but mm. I don't think it's my favorite. Yeah. Uh, but then yeah. I thought about it, and I was like, there are so many complex flavors in here that it, while it it's not doesn't have like a punch, like uh, you know, like the the Bell Me, like the whiskey bourbon or the um, the the one hundred eight right, right. The Tennessee whiskey, yeah. it doesn't have that. Bam! Here mm-hmm. it is. It's very soft and round, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, damn! It's it, there's a lot of flavors in that soft and round category. Yeah. Um. You know, and then right. I went through the Modvedri or whatever it is, and and all of the the other ones. I I I can't I can't order these. I think that they're all they're all equal. They're all they're all great spirits. They're all made very very well. Yeah. Um. And they're very very different from one another. Even though they're like, what I love about whiskey and bourbon and, and that whole genre i guess of spirit is that they're so tightly related but they're so different at the same time yeah that's i mean that's one of my favorite things about what is happening right now within the bourbon industry is that you know there's a very uh if you choose to see sort of half empty it's a very tightly defined scope of the definition of bourbon Mm -hmm. uh and and so people are getting really creative because you could so bourbon by itself you know, is is just made of 100% grain, but it's at least 51% corn. And then, you know, so long as you make it in the U.S. and age it in a, an unused chart oak barrel, I mean, you can get crazy with the different grains you can do, the different, you know, all these different kind of things. There are a lot of variables that you can change and, and really affect the outcome of that, that product to make it something completely un, non-traditional. Now, the finishing is a whole different thing, and there there are... Um, there's any number of sort of camps that people can fall in in terms of what they think it is or call it. You know, I've heard people um, call, you know, our cask or any cask finished bourbon uh, a flavored whiskey. Hmm. You know, I'm not going to stop anybody from from saying anything or having their their own opinion. Um, But the fact is, I mean, we're just trying to do something a little bit outside the box and kind of see how how it goes. And I, you know, I really enjoy the products and, I don't know. Like, to me, there's kind of there's no wrong answer. I mean, like, there's purists in in every sort of aspect in any industry and in any consumable good, and you know. Just well, that's why you guys sell the, the original. We found plenty of people who enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Warren and I are are, are, are kind of purists, I think, in some regard in the beer in the beer industry, and and I, I I like your take on it, where it's like, well. You know, we're, we're making good stuff, and, and, you know, there are people out there on either side of whether they like it or not, and there you go. Yeah. But we like it, and, yeah. and we're going to keep doing it. And I, I, I appreciate well, that. I really do. I think that's cool. And you guys sell the, 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 the base, right? Because the, the, the bourbon that you guys sent us, it's the same in the two different finishes that we have, right? That's right. The yeah, only difference the is the finishing. Yeah. yeah. Which makes and that. That thing you said is, is that. You know, the, the fact that purists exist, I mean, to be honest, like, I tend to like things generally, like, the simpler, the better, and kind of like, yeah, this is the tried and true, but um, it's kind of only, it's kind of like, um, without the bad, there is no good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, if everything were just the way you want it, you wouldn't realize that you even liked it, because it's all you have. Sure. Right? You know? It's like, you got to have all this variation to realize what you do like, and so... 
kind of just what makes the world go round. Yeah, there that's, has to be an average. Right. That's what I used to tell women <laughs> yeah. in high school. I was like, look, oh, yeah. go <laughs> to the movies with me. How else are you going to know if something else is better out there than if you don't settle right now right. for a date? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it didn't work. Once you get a taste of the best, <laughs> then tell me that I'm gone, <laughs> right. and that's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Andy, we're going to let you go, man. We've kept you on long enough. Um, yeah. I really appreciate you sending spirits and and, uh, and and taking time to talk to us about your your absolutely rad family history. I, th- I think that's really cool, and and uh, I I've, I've, I have dreams, I guess, even though my family wasn't involved in any sort of cool industry like that, but, you know, of taking up the mantle of your family, and, and like kind of like reliving your roots and, and tracing your roots that way, and for you to be able to, to do that in your own kind of backyard, I guess, so to speak, literally, like, mm-hmm. finding stuff, relics from your family history, I think that's really cool, man, and I wish you guys all the best. This, the spirits are great, and I hope to yeah. get down there and, and, and take a tour of the facility and, and uh, have a couple glasses with you. Great. Well, yeah, thanks, guys, so much. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun, and uh, just would would remind everyone, everyone's got something cool in there. It's just a matter of going to search and find, find your family history. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, definitely encourage people to do that because you'll you'll find something cool. Exactly. Real quick, uh, how many states can we get uh, your spirits in? Is it just um, Tennessee, or can we get? I believe it's twenty two states. Awesome. Okay. Well, so you yeah. have a chance out um, there, folks. <laughs> yeah, I could name them off all right now, but uh, I don't, <laughs> don't want to lose my voice. Well, <laughs> is it, yeah, I imagine right. it's on your website, right? Yeah. Yeah, it should be. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, if you're in the Nashville, Tennessee area, be sure to visit Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. You can check them out at, uh, I believe it's just, yeah, greenbriardistillery.com. All right, Andy, thanks very much again. I appreciate it. Sure thing. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, we'll talk to you. Bye. That was really cool, man. Yeah. And I know, you know, we kind of say it a lot. Oh, this is good. And it seems like every guest brings, you know, everything good in, but... In this case, it's—I mean—in all cases, it was true. But this is; these were really stand out to me. Yeah, and they were all so different, right? And then as they opened up too, it was a totally different experience. Yeah, I'm willing to pick a favorite, and it's the, oh, sh- oh, it's shot the, caller Warren. Warren's calling a shot right now. Let's yeah. go. What is it? Uh, Be honest. Hot shots right here. Okay, <laughs> I love that movie. It's the uh, what the move on one. Oh. Mo- Movedri. Yeah, the Dave Marley Avil. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, really, that was your favorite. I think I think so. Um, I, you do not like by bigger much. flavors. Not and- by much. Well, and to me, the way it changed over time. Mm-hmm. Like, like like how Andy said, um, your pal gets used to certain flavors and then other things stand out. I guess that would be the one to buy because then if you just keep adding water to it every sip you take... It changes. You still have a large glass. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's really good. And to be honest with you, before you pointed out, and I don't know why I didn't make the connection, but um, that we have essentially the same spirit in three glasses. Right. That Just bourbon. the two different finishes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it changed it so much. And, you know, I've seen a lot of this in the spirits world. Um, with like larger distilleries where they do, oh, it's a port cask finish and a right, sherry yeah. cask finish, whatever. But without having the the uh, the mother spirit, I guess for lack of a better term, you don't yeah. really know what that means, right? You don't really know how the how the how the cask impacts it. So yeah. Anyway, check all that stuff out, guys. Go to greenbriardistillery.com dot com and uh, and and hit the guys up. Tell them what you thought about the, their appearance. Try to buy their spirits. Yeah. Really, they were really good. I definitely recommend them. Yeah. And also, 
uh, leave us a review too on iTunes and whatever other podcasting apps there are out there. Stitcher. That's even for on our sure. website, right? You can leave a comment on the Brain Network. You can leave a comment on this post if you wanted to right. as well. Um, and then if you want to leave feedback for the show, feedback at thebrewingnetwork.com. If you have any recommendations of distilleries you would like to hear their story from, because that's what I really want to do. Oh, yeah. And this distillery was perfect, Nelson's Green Bar, because they have such a rich history. But that's what I love about the show. Yeah. Is the, the story behind what's going on in the craft industry and the story behind the people who are actually making it happen. So. Yeah. Help us help you. <laughs> yes, exactly right. All right, everybody. Until we talk to you again, be good to each other. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.